Most people have good intentions, but few people practice intentionality. Greetings once again from Coach K in Charlotte, North Carolina, for another edition of Insights on Intentionality. This semi-monthly podcast is designed to conduct interviews, to answer questions that come into our website, and most of all, provide insights on the intentional way. On this particular episode, I'm welcoming one of my uh, Fox old friends, uh, Coach John Brooks. Coach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be with you. John Brooks has been a big influence in my life. We'll get into more of the details later on about how God allowed us to cross paths and to be able to serve him together for the last uh, 40 years. But let's go back further in his uh, early childhood experience. Uh, Coach, you grew up in a single-parent family in the state of West Virginia. Uh, you had a, a grandfather that came along and uh, played a vital role in that regard. But then as you got into your high school years, uh, athletics became to be a, a great platform for you, and specifically uh, two coaches who invested in you. These leaders around the country that sometimes deal with guys who've had father's wounds. We talk about the father figure role, and for you, it was these two high school coaches, both in football and basketball. Tell us about your experience growing up in West Virginia. Yeah, Jeff, I got interested in uh, organized sports in junior high, now, now called middle school. And football uh, was really the sport for me uh, in those early middle school years, junior high years. And I got to know some assistant coaches pretty well. And then the head coach uh, made friends with me. And I ended up having him as a teacher as well. Um, he was a real good influence. He called me into his office. I started playing for him in uh, ninth grade. And he called me into his office. And every every week, he'd call me in and just ask me how things are going. How's things going at home? Do, do you have what you need? And that kind of thing. And he really was concerned about me as a person and uh, did a lot to help me and direct me, uh, especially uh, toward college. And uh, he did a lot of things on his own outside of school and and football to uh, not only be a good influence on me, but to uh, really help me uh, become the person I needed to be. And then my high school basketball coach uh, also came along when I was in the ninth grade. And he helped coach football. And so I made uh, I, re- I had a relationship with him, made friends with him in the ninth grade, uh, even before I got on the varsity. And uh, I roomed with him at a state championship uh, one weekend in football. Uh, as as it worked out, uh, he and I had to share a hotel room and uh, got to know him even better, even to the point where I'd come out for basketball after football was over because of him. And he really helped me a lot, worked with me after practice. And I didn't have the background in basketball I did in football, and, and yet he... Uh, just was a, a great friend and over the years became even a better friend but in high school he worked us hard uh, just got involved in our lives and uh, he was a big influence on me for sure 
So among those two uh, state championship teams, you played on one in football and then the 1964 uh, 3A championship team in the state of West Virginia. So you're beginning to look for the next level. What is what is schooling going to look like? And uh, to continue on the father figure analogy, uh, these coaches obviously were anxious to see what would happen at the next level. You had some options uh, to take a partial scholarship <clears throat> to uh, University of West Virginia, but then you came down to ACC country. Uh, Coach Ritchie, one of your two coaches you're referring to as a man that I had a chance to hear about all my life and I had a chance to meet him at the latter stages of his life. So he was instrumental, having played at Wake Forest, to bring you down to ACC country and then eventually where you ended up in Greensboro. Tell us about those uh, those college explorations, which is so pivotal in a man's life. Yeah, I had a few options in West Virginia um, with both football and basketball. And then you just mentioned at West Virginia University with basketball. But Coach Ritchie, um, between our junior and senior years, took me and three other guys on a little southern tour. And uh, we spent about eight days in uh, North Carolina going to Wake Forest for a couple of nights and playing basketball with their, their uh, team members that were still on campus in the summer. And then we went to uh, Guilford College in Greensboro spent a couple of days uh, visiting with one of Coach Ritchie's former teammates at Wake, Jerry Steele. And then we've topped it off going down to uh, East Carolina and spending a couple of days. And at each campus, we played basketball. We walked around the school, went to the admissions, uh, just getting a feel for, you know, what's what's next in college, what's what's going to happen in college. And uh, just, I ended up getting an offer at Guilford, and uh, I loved the campus. I loved the coach, Coach Steele, whom I still love today. And uh, I don't know, Coach Ritchie just did a wonderful thing for me. I would have never had that opportunity on my own to do anything like that. And I was very fortunate in high school to be surrounded by male faculty members and coaches who uh, took an interest in helping a young man to uh, better himself and you know especially uh, secondary or uh, excuse me higher education as we say often uh, with our ministry uh, most people have good intentions I bet there were some people that were thinking hey oh coach can move on to the next level um, uh, Johnny is they knew you back in those days in West Virginia, but but right. Coach Richie was intentionality uh, right. per, per personified in, in taking you there, not just uh, writing letters and making phone calls. That would be good, but he went from good to great to actually take you to let you see some of these campuses. Right. And of course, you went to that next level, and that's where your God story uh, comes about. You had been exposed to the things of God, but but tell us about your God story at this stage of your journey. Well, I grew up going to church, my mom and my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, some of the time would take us to church and we were there, seemed like all the time. And uh, I heard the gospel at a young age and uh, even during a revival meeting, I went forward because some boys went forward. And uh, I'm not sure, I don't think that I really trusted Christ that night. I don't, I'm not sure I understood everything about the gospel at that point. I was about 11 or 12 years old. But during my sophomore year in college, I 
toward the end of the uh, school year in May, I really became convicted about about God, who he was, who he was to me, who he was in my life. And uh, by the time I went home after exams and all that, I became really convicted that I'm not sure, but I really know if I died today, I'd go to heaven. And uh, backing up even further, and I failed to mention this earlier, Jeff, there was another man in my life named Jim Reed. And I met Jim when I was in the second grade. Uh, he was coaching the little Pop Warner team in our community, and I got on that team. And uh, and Jim, at that time, had just gotten out of the Marine Corps, a little rough around the edges. He worked on the railroad and coached our team in the afternoon. And uh, Jim was a rough guy, not a believer. But at some point, Along that path from second grade to sixth grade, which I played football for him, he came back one one of those times a different man. And I found out that he had trusted Christ. He had gotten saved. His wife had gotten saved first. And she made such an impact on him that he ended up trusting the Lord as well. And I saw such a change in Jim. It was just phenomenal at the difference, like he was a different man altogether. And we stayed in contact, and we were in the same church. And when I got back home at, after my sophomore year, um, I reunited with Jim. And uh, as he told people, he drove all over the state of West Virginia watching us play football and basketball, and it's some of the best times of his life. And, and uh, so he knew me when I was really, really small. And... Uh, Jim and I, again, resumed our, our friendship, and in July of that summer, 1966, I know that goes back a long way, but uh, I felt under great conviction and just walked from my house over to the church, and Jim happened to be there. It was on a Monday, and he was filling in for the pastor on Wednesday night because the pastor was on vacation. So I went, saw his car there, and I went and knocked on the church door, the church uh, pastor's office door. And Jim was in there and welcomed me in, and I just unburdened my heart to him. And I knelt right by the pastor's desk, and he took me through the scripture in Romans, through the, the Roman road, and uh, I got saved that night. And uh, he was a fantastic influence because he also went along with another guy in the church who had previously played college football at the University of Kentucky. Uh, those two guys came every Tuesday evening and picked me up the rest of that summer. It was July the 11th, 1966, when I trusted Christ. And, uh, those guys discipled me. Well, we'd go out and stop at the Stewart's root beer stand and <laughs> and uh, we would uh, sing and that was horrible but <laughs> but we would sing. It was a joyful noise I bet. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, they could not sing and that was bad because Jim was also the choir director. <laughs> but we prayed, we read the scripture and talked about life and uh, 
Man, those were some great memories. You mentioned uh, Jim Reed, obviously, uh, being a longtime friend. I've heard that name, and he's with the Lord now. And right. so I know that legacy continues on. But to know about his Pop Warner football coaching and you being a second grader, it takes me back to uh, just a few weeks ago when I was spending a Monday afternoon with my granddaughter, Madison, and there were some second and third grade uh, age boys coming to Pop Warner football practice uh, at their uh, athletic field in their community center. And I asked those guys, because I was getting ready to go to Pennsylvania, and I want to go back and revisit Carlisle, where Pop Warner coached Jim Thorpe. Mm -hmm. And again, the intentionality. Most people don't know this story, that uh, Jim Thorpe didn't ever try out for the football team. He was running around on campus. In fact, he was trying to run away from school. You know, they had transported these Indians from uh, Oklahoma, uh, South Dakota. They'd got these old army barracks after the Civil War. And then uh, right at the uh, turn of the last century there to provide it as an Indian industrial school. And so they brought in Thorpe and many others to come and be a part uh, of that process. Well, he's wanting to run away. They were trying to Americanize these Indians. And they, they did not like that, you know, a lack of respect for their own culture. And so uh, when Warner saw Thorpe running across the, uh, the school campus, that's when he said, hey, you need to come out. It was actually track practice at the time. You need to come out here and put some, put some spikes on, as it was back in those cinder track days, and, and take all that bent-up energy, and uh, you could, you know, win some medals, uh, having no clue that one day he'd go to the 1912 Olympics oh. and actually do that. But then, after the track success, he said, listen, we can really feature you in this new offense I'm developing with uh, the football team. And so Thorpe becomes an All-American in 1911 season and the 1912 season, goes to Stockholm and wins those medals as a famous Olympian. And uh, But that all started because Pop Warner was intentional enough to see the potential in a Jim Thorpe and to channel that energy into something. And so here's, here's a Jim Reed that's out there not yet knowing Christ, but as a as a guy wanting to invest in the young men, that was a good quality he had. Right. And then to be able to see not just his coaching in a particular sport, but you saw the changed life in a man who then became obviously a, a tremendous mentor that you're describing to us. And obviously uh, Coach Steele, Coach Ritchie, all these guys are playing a crucial role. Now on the collegiate level, we love to let guys recognize that you know we're not just uh, Holy Joes, so we want to be regular Joes. And so your collegiate experience uh, took you to the NAIA tournament in Kansas City. We talk about March Madness these days and bracketology. At the small college level uh, that you were competing in the Carolina, Carolinas Conference, those still uh, professional players would come out of that division and go to the NBA. You guys went to Kansas City for the annual tournament. I've heard you tell me uh, numerous stories about that. Uh, give us uh, some experiences of what it was like to go to Kansas City and play in the NAIA National Tournament. Well, in the NAIA organization, there were 32 districts across the uh, country. We were in District 26. And my sophomore, junior, and senior years in college, we won the District 26. That qualified you to go to the national tournament. So 32 schools would descend on Kansas City, Missouri, the municipal auditorium. And starting on Monday morning at 9 o'clock, they would play that tournament down to a championship on Saturday night. And experiencing going to that, Jeff, I, I flew, flew an airplane for the first time and uh, got to go you know, through Chicago, O'Hare, and all that. And uh, 
play in that tournament for three years, and it was a great experience. Um, one of the one of the the biggest things is we <laughs> that made an impression on me is we could go from our hotel down in the basement, go underground, and come up in that auditorium. I didn't even have didn't even have to go outside. And since it was in uh, it's either late February or early March. Uh, that was good because it was cold in Kansas City at that time. And speaking of intentionality, I've heard you talk about the uh, tremendous hospitality. Uh, the Hallmark card people were out yep. there, yep. as well as be the Russell Stover Candy Company or whatever. But you'd experience tremendous hospitality. That's an example of intentionality. Right. Yeah, they, they had a, a bit local businesses sponsored each uh, a, a different school. And... Hallmark Cards was just great with us. They took us to a fancy steakhouse and and took us on a tour of where they make the cards and how they make the cards and and all that. And that was really really interesting. Part of I guess part of your overall college education. I really enjoyed that. But I would assume that one of the major athletic regrets in life uh, was to see that the potential of your team. Uh, to win that championship on at least one occasion when you were in the number one seed in the tournament, right. but also had strong potential uh, the other two occasions. You know, you could right. have had some multiple championships. So I've heard about you talk about one of the most difficult losses, uh, going again back to uh, most people have good intentions. I'm sure your teammates had good intentions to go out there and play well, but uh, you either peaked too early or from what I've heard you describe in years past, there really wasn't a lack of readiness and alertness that uh, really hampered because uh, you didn't put your A game onto the basketball court and you didn't get a chance to cut the nets down. Uh, talk about that experience. Well, especially my senior year, we were seated number one. We didn't necessarily have the best um, record, although we ended up winning over 30 games that year. But we went out there and I think some of the guys thought, well, we're seated number one, so... We're not going to have to, you know, do a whole lot to uh, to win this tournament, and I don't think they took it as seriously as they should have. And we ended up, we did win a couple of games, but we ended up losing to a team that I don't think would have finished in the top half of the Carolinas Conference, and uh, that was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I went back to the hotel and went, got in my room and just sat there. For the rest of the evening, I didn't eat anything, drink anything. Just it was just heartbreaking that we threw that opportunity away because you don't get many of those. And I think a spiritual parallel, having just completed a men's retreat in Pennsylvania, we talked about uh, spiritual warfare of Ephesians six, and there's an alertness that must be held by the military when they go out there and engage the enemy. And in athletics, again, the readiness factor: uh, are we really mentally focused? Uh, respecting the opponent, not just living off the laurels. Well, hey, if we cut the nets down for the Carolinas Conference, they're just going to automatically come and hand us the trophy. Right. And obviously all the opponents out there, uh, they were scheming and strategizing the opposite scenario. A lot of men in their Christian life, uh, obviously none of us are ever going to bat a 1,000. We all have uh, challenges, and we don't always live up to those challenges. But a lot of times uh, the lack of alertness, I know there's a lot of uh, uh New Testament passages that talk about, you know, being alert to the enemy right. and striving to be ready. And so when I hear you talk about the NAI experiences, it reminds me of a lot of guys that are just kind of casual 
uh, in their attitude towards this Christian walk. And it's not a recreation uh, field. It's, it's a battlefield. Right. We must go into that situation. Right. So you come to Christ uh, as a young adult. Uh, you get a chance to move on and, and graduate. And you get into coaching. Uh, just now, uh, your 50th year of high school coaching on the public school campus, on the private school campus. Tell us about these five decades of coaching multiple sports. What drew you in? Was it your athletic experience? Was it these coaches investing in you and you want to carry that legacy on? Tell us about how coaching came about and some of the lessons you've learned over the years. Well, I think I ended up going into education and coaching because of the influence of my high school coaches, for sure, and even my college coaches. Uh, I thought this is a profession that is worthwhile, whereas it's not a uh, lucrative uh, profession, uh, per se. It is a very rewarding profession in that you do get to invest in the lives of young men. And, of course, I coached um, young women as well in track and cross-country over the years and even a couple of years in women's basketball. So these guys, you know, influenced me. And as I, I went back uh, to Williamson High School where I grew up, and they were gracious to induct me into the Williamson High School Athletic Hall of Fame. And as I told them uh, at the awards presentation, I have spent those years giving back to young people what was given to me. Mm. And uh, I, I just obviously couldn't uh, put a value on it, what I received from all my coaches and teachers and so forth, but I wanted to try and invest in the lives of of young men and then eventually young women as well and uh, starting out coaching in public school and uh, getting to know kids in the community uh, and parents of course is a lot different than today uh, my very first year of teaching and coaching was 1968-69 school year so a lot of things have changed uh, since then and here in 2018 but Anyway, I, I I enjoyed coaching, period, and I loved coaching football and basketball and track. And uh, I got into it the first school where I was teaching. Uh, they had openings in all th three sports, and uh, so I got involved in that right away. First year, my college coach, Coach Steele, was uh, instrumental in helping me, even. Uh, invited me to a clinic, a coaching clinic in Greensboro before I ever started coaching in, in uh, Guilford County. One of those mentors in your early days was Coach Doug Henderson. Right. And you had a chance to be on his staff for multiple years. And uh, he passed away this past year. And mm -hmm. though I'd met him at some of the clinics and things like that after coming along beside and coaching with you in the private school arena, you know, I knew this past year to, to be able to go to his memorial service would be a uh, a special occasion. You had a chance to reunite with former players, former coaches on the staff uh, that were with Coach Henderson. But I knew that was a major aspect to look at this stage of your life, you know, much like these uh, high school and college coaches 
but but uh, Coach Henderson had a big influence on you, and that was uh, a chance to reflect, uh, to walk down memory lane. Uh, tell us about uh, Coach Henderson, and then also uh, being that his memorial service, some some reflections you had on his life. Yeah, uh, Doug Henderson was a tremendous uh, football coach, and uh, when he came to the school where I was, uh, he took over the head football coaching position and uh, immediately brought uh, a level of excellence, a level of uh, a word you use a lot, intentionality, and really getting to know kids and and getting to uh, see their strengths and weaknesses and uh, how we could as a staff best utilize kids not only on the field but to help them in their other pursuits and even in other sports. Coach Henderson really supported uh, his athletes when they played other sports. And in those days, there were multiple sport athletes. Most of the kids were multiple sport athletes. And Coach Henderson would go and support them in their other sports as well, as well as uh, his coaches coached other sports. and. Uh, he supported me a lot in track, actually helped me as one of my assistant coaches a couple of years in track and field, and uh, just continued to keep up with people over the years. And uh, we did attend a lot of clinics with him. That's where I really got serious about clinics, even though I was going to them before I knew Coach Henderson. You know, Coach, at that memorial service with Doug Henderson, it was neat to see some uh, former coaching staff members, uh, guys that I've heard you talk about, a few that I've met. Uh, Kenny Browning was actually a guy that was at that particular service. Talk to me about the impact of Kenny as a high school coach as well as on the collegiate ranks. Well, first of all, Kenny and I go back to college days. He was uh, my best friend at uh, Guilford College in the old days. And uh, he and I got to be pretty close friends. I visited his home in uh, Durham, and he came to West Virginia in, in the summer and spent a week with me and so we got to be good friends and when we got out of uh, of college and both went into coaching he went into uh, high school football coaching uh, immediately in Virginia and then after a year or two came back to North Carolina but Kenny was a tremendous uh, football coach a very mental uh, cerebral type guy really studied the game he was a very bright guy anyway and uh he ended up um, spending some quality years at uh, ledford high school and then at northern durham where he won a state championship and uh, coached at the highest level in high school in north carolina and still is regarded as one of the best high school football coaches in the state of north carolina uh, though he's retired at this time at this point but he also spent uh, quite a few seasons at uh, Chapel Hill, went there with uh, Mac Brown um, back in the 80s, and, uh, and then stayed on for uh, several more coaches before he uh, retired. But uh, Kenny was a tremendous influence in my life. He was very helpful to me when I was coaching football, and, and uh, we had a lot of common interests, and so... He was a he was a big influence, and to be appropriate to have him there at the Henderson Memorial uh, to join others that obviously appreciated the heritage of this great high school coach. You know, uh, another upperclassman I've heard you talk about before that took you under the 
uh, under his wings uh, there at Guilford uh, during your collegiate era was Dave Odom. And right. uh, obviously yep. sports fans would recognize uh, that name, uh, most well-known for coaching uh, Tim Duncan at Wake Forest. Uh, tell us about Dave Odom as an upperclassman at Guilford and then since then y'all's parallel story in coaching. Well, Dave was a senior when I was a freshman, and uh, he was sort of assigned to me as a big brother on the team, and we did some things together, and he took me some uh, to some uh, uh, Division One football games, and I think maybe, Jeff, I've mentioned to you before that he took me over to Wake Forest when uh, they were playing NC State, and uh, what a tremendous game that was. Uh, I can't remember now exactly. Uh, Brian Piccolo was the star for Wake Forest and scored 21 points, and they beat State 21 to 20. Brian Piccolo, for you listeners, if you've been around a long time, the famous movie chronicling the story between he and Gail Sayers from the Chicago Bears era. But this goes back to the collegiate ranks when he was a Demon Deacon. Right. Dave, David uh, knew some of those guys, and... Uh, that was a great experience to go and watch that football game. Not only was it a great football game, but the fact that that one player had such an impact uh, in that game uh, and went on to be a, you know, an iconic type player. Definitely an old school throwback uh, from that era, Definitely. from the uh, rough and tumble Lombardi uh, era in the professional football ranks. So again, these guys in uh, Williamson, West Virginia, you know, they impacted you greatly. Uh, mm -hmm. Coming up the ranks, you go to the collegiate level, uh, your uh, collegiate coaches. Uh, recently had a chance to visit with Coach Steele. You've talked about him previously on this podcast. Uh, how's Coach Steele doing these days? Well, he's still in a situation where he can't uh, walk uh, on his own. But he told me this uh, last time I visited that he is making progress in his physical therapy, he was able to stand on his own for three minutes, which is a tremendous uh, improvement with his uh, nerve damage in his legs. So uh, he is hopeful uh, that he's going to walk out of there one day. He doesn't know when, but he's hopeful that he's going to be able to do that. And, and we talked about old times, and uh, I thanked him for the tremendous input he had in my life and the help he's given me all along the way actually and he remembered things about games uh that that i did that i didn't remember and uh he even told me a story about staying uh, when he worked at uh, campbell university way back in the 60s or maybe even in the 50s uh, campbell university had the largest summer basketball camp in the nation and uh, he told me about uh, rooming with John Wooden at that camp because I had given him a book um, about John Wooden, and uh, but I'd never heard that story that he had been a roommate of his when they were both uh, working at that camp down in Campbell. The Wizard of Westwood. Right. Well, one of your uh, high school coaches, you talked about your football coach and your basketball coach having such an influence on you. We're uh, taping this podcast on November the 15th. This is the actual birthday of Coach George Ritchie. And uh, I tried to be intentional uh, in a practical manner with a Christmas present of uh, a number of years ago when we knew Coach Ritchie was in his uh, declining health. And I asked you, I said, hey, 
would you like to have one more visit with him? And you said you did. And submits your own coaching, uh, one of your 50 years uh, being involved in athletes' lives. I just felt intentional to say, let's set this trip up, and I'll be your taxi cab driver. Let's go up there and, and visit Williamson, West Virginia, all these places I'd heard about uh, to see the old basketball arena. And so this is Coach Richie's birthday. And yes. uh, what a memorable trip that was. Uh, uh, obviously, Coach Richie impacted you greatly. And you had some concerns uh, for spirituality going into that trip. Uh, give our audience a little bit of an overview of that walk down memory lane for you uh, to go back to your high school era, but also to be able to invest in your old high school coaching. God surprised you with some things we discovered. Yes, I I didn't know how bad he was. And for those of you that maybe don't know or hadn't heard that uh, he had cancer and had been battling it for years, but it uh, eventually got the best of him. But he had declined to a point. I'd called him regularly and he would tell me, no, nah, don't come now. Uh, wait till I get out of the hospital or wait till I'm feeling better and then you can come see me. Well, Jeff, that was... Uh, a great thing to offer that trip because uh, had we not gone, I would not have seen him again uh, this side of eternity. And he had uh, really lost a tremendous amount of weight and could barely had the energy to talk. He could just whisper basically, and sometimes he couldn't even do that. He would just nod and grin. But I had a chance to spend a few minutes with him privately and... Uh, and I told him, as a coach, I know it won't be much longer for you on this side, but uh, I want to see you on the other side. Are you ready? And he, uh, his face lit up. He grinned from ear to ear and shook his head and smiled and said yes, and or whispered yes. And I'd found out that he'd been going to a, a church actually right next door to where he lived, and had been one of the uh, most faithful attenders uh, at that church, and uh, and he he I found out after his uh, after his death, which was only two days after we left. We left there on a Saturday, and he passed away on Monday. But uh, the pastor told me that he wanted uh, one of the scriptures. Uh, from uh, Isaiah read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he wanted that to be read uh, at his funeral. And uh, and I talked with the pastor on a different occasion, of course, and he told me that Coach Richie was one of his most faithful attenders, never missed a Bible study, really uh, was involved in the church, which really made me happy. We saw a... Uh, uh a Bible on his nightstand, uh, yeah. which showed it had been uh, well read. And so a man that had been more private in his faith, which gave you some uncertainty about his spiritual future, but for uh, the opportunity to have that visit, uh, for us to observe and to uh, be with his family, his daughters were very impacted and said, hey, mm -hmm. well remember our dad talking so much about uh, Johnny Brooks, as he called you back in those days. And so that was great to be a part of that. And so I would encourage you listeners this is another practical example for intentionality. Many people have good intentions. Few people practice intentionality. And so look for ways to uh, sometimes offer a practical gift to somebody. I don't say that for self-merit, but just exemplify uh, what this can look like moving forward. Well, we also went to the old Williamson Fieldhouse. Wow, what an amazing uh, display. It had been recently renovated. 
and uh, obviously a place where you'd played those high school uh, games that you talked about earlier on the podcast. And I think equally, and not just rekindling the flame with Coach Ritchie, getting assurance of his salvation, but obviously some old teammates that were local had come to town and really enjoyed uh, having that mini reunion with you, somewhat unexpected. Mm-hmm. But uh, we also had a chance to, to tour the field house, uh, go to your old locker room, and, and uh, obviously the place where you live. What, what did that bring back, that walk, back, walk down memory lane? Well, obviously, all those memories just flooded in, and uh, I, I tell you, I spent so much time there uh, because we also played our high school football games at the field right outside the uh, field house, but we used the field house as the locker rooms for football as well, and then the baseball team used them in the spring for that, so... Even though that was not on our campus, um, it was an integral part of our athletic program. And to see that uh, field house packed uh, night after night in a small town, if you can imagine a small town in rural West Virginia, uh, that was a big draw. And uh, I just have tremendous memories of uh, not only regular season games against uh, you know big rivals, but also tournaments that led to further playoffs you know around the state with the state championship culminating at West Virginia University but uh, yeah it brought Jeff it was great to to be there and they'd even taken some uh, some seating out of the old high school auditorium that I attended and put them down there and uh, used them as sort of uh, special seating for for certain people uh, at the games because uh, all the seating was upstairs, as you know, you saw it, and uh, but it would hold, um, they say, <laughs> completely full, about three thousand people, and uh, I've seen it where it was hard to get a place to stand. So that was really, really impactful for me. Brought back a lot of great memories, both mostly basketball, but also even football too. For you listeners that. Uh have loved sports movies. Uh, obviously, Hoosiers is in most people's uh, top ten, and uh, I, I felt that era of time coming alive. I've been to that actual high school in Indiana uh, where uh, the Hickory High team uh, played, and so this was very similar as far as the era of time, but the field house and its seating with everything up on the upper level what was very, very unique, such a unique architecture for, uh, I think it was 1950 is when the field house opened mm-hmm. on the National Historical Register now. And uh, so glad the town renovated it and preserved it, you know, because uh, people like yourself that obviously played and, and uh, went to high school uh, in that vicinity have a chance to uh, take such a walk down memory lane. And occasionally there'll be uh, special games uh, played there even in modern times. Well, as we think about father figures, as you think about impactful men, uh, we're talking about reaching and discipling men with those who listen to this podcast. Then, obviously, uh, at another time, uh, we'll bring you back and maybe get into more extensive history of your half century of coaching high school sports. Uh, 37 years on one uh, private school campus um, that promoted Christian education, and then, obviously, uh, 12 to 13 years on some public school campuses, including where you started out with Coach Henderson. Mm-hmm. You talked earlier on the podcast about while coaching is not a lucrative uh, uh, vocation, it's a very rewarding career. As you think back over uh, those five decades, uh, what are a couple uh, things that you know cause you to reflect 
with that particular principle that brings that rewarding aspect out of your interest in the young people's lives? Well, in some regards, it's the amount of time you spend with uh, athletes. Uh, you, you may, if you're a teacher as well as a coach, you may have those students in class during the day. You may interact with them at lunch, and you definitely interact with them uh, at practice and at, at games and, and parent-teacher association meetings and so forth. You also spend time with their parents, so you really get to know them pretty well. Again, another chance to encounter those students and see them from a different angle and you build relationships with kids and even my first years at Western Guilford in the initial stages of my career I coached a kid that was a tremendous all-round athlete one of the best that has ever come out of Western Guilford and I saw him recently um, well within the last two months and got a chance to sit down and talk with him um, and it was just almost like we'd never been apart we talked about certain games about certain practices about certain opponents and uh, we had a really really great conversation for about two hours and uh, that was a real blessing to me uh, to know that uh, he remembered a lot about uh, things we'd done you know together as a, as a coach and player and uh, the things we'd accomplished together it's very very rewarding for me and uh, there were others at that school as well but he was just uh, uh, one of the best and, and it's not just that he's what he's gone on to do and working with young people and coaching and and uh, even though he was in the business world he still uh, volunteers as a coach and a youth league and that kind of thing and says, I remember a lot of the things that we did at Western that I try to em employ in uh, with these younger kids. One of the things I would share with the audience uh, as well as uh, using the coaching grid for men's discipleship, that uh, player development is such a crucial aspect. Mm -hmm. You talked about player relationships. Right. And obviously on the practice field, uh, the, the basketball court, you obviously were involved in multiple sports. And I got to know you originally through the sport of basketball. You coached my brother in the late 70s. My brother had some raw talent, but uh, had not been fully developed, had not been part of a program. A lot of schools feel teams, but not every school uh, builds a program. And that's something you were striving for as you came to Charlotte uh, from Greensboro uh, to be involved at Northside in Charlotte for 37 years. And so I saw that firsthand, my brother's uh, impact, not just uh, with his basketball skills uh, being heightened, but also how he spoke volumes uh, about your investment in his life uh, off court, off campus, and uh, how he held you and still even today in the very, very high esteem. So as I watched that, as I had a chance to come back and, and coach alongside of you, that was a tremendous experience for me for those five years. And that, that grid that I used to disciple men today was so rewarding. And one of the things I'll always remember is you took us to coaching clinics. And uh, while I attended mm. and uh, absorbed knowledge with uh, coaching basketball classes and things of that nature uh, as a physical edu 
education major, but to go out there and to go to these uh, clinics uh, held by collegiate coachings, uh, coaching staffs as well as high school coaches, uh, specifically in Chapel Hill, uh, you were always a lifelong learner. You weren't just satisfied with what Coach Henderson uh, taught you during your six-year run with him. Let's continue to go back. And that's a good lesson for leaders to always be a lifelong learner. Proverbs 1, 5 says, Teach a wise man, and he will increase in learning. Uh, tell us about the advantage of coaching clinics, and uh, we'll draw a parallel to that to men's discipleship. Yeah, Jeff, before I even graduated from college, my college coach uh, informed me about a clinic held in Greensboro. That's the North Carolina Coaches Association Clinic, one of the biggest in the country. And uh, he said, go to it. Even if you don't know anybody, go to it. You'll learn something if you just get a few drills or something like that. And even one of my college uh, classmates, who's one of the best, also one of the best football coaches in North Carolina, um, always felt like, even though he was really, really a good coach and very knowledgeable, always felt like he could learn something from anybody. And uh, Coach Steele had that had that same uh, philosophy that you can go and and pick up something, and uh, and I still today, uh, after 51 years of <laughs> being in education, I still help um, assist a coach in track and field, and I still read articles and uh, books and watch videos on uh, the events that I coach, and uh, I think you can continue to learn and learn as kids get stronger and faster and so forth, uh, developing them is important. And you can always learn something from anybody. As Coach Steele said, even if it's what not to do, you can still learn. And uh, and I believe in that. And I still try to do that today. So you leaders out there, you know, uh, these conferences around the country, uh, the premier men's conference to me is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the first Saturday in February. Steve Sonderman and his group at No Regrets Ministries uh, host that occasion. About 4,000 guys attended online, or excuse me, live, and then another 16,000 or more uh, are out there with a simulcast online. And so uh, that'd be an example. Uh, there are others that hold uh, conferences, uh, Promise Keepers for many years, uh, Coach Bill McCartney. Uh, men showed up in stadiums by the masses. Mm -hmm. And so uh, take advantage of that. Always be a lifelong learner and uh, trade some baseball cards with some other guys, not just at the clinic, but also in your own networking. A lot of times we talk about men living lives of isolation. I think that also can take place with a leader. He can get so self-absorbed in his little world versus talking to another brother. And mm -hmm. so iron sharpening, kingdom networking, and ministry equipping is your equivalency to what we discovered at a coaching clinic level. And there was some role reversal as we fast forward uh, to about uh, 35 years into our uh, friendship. I began to take you to some coaching clinics right. and expose you to discipleship uh, and uh, give you a chance to uh, see some of those things. We tried to mimic that as well, and I think that was helpful mm -hmm. in your own uh, journey of faith. Well, as we have a chance to uh, travel the country, one of the most commonly requested topics is who's in your foxhole? Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. And as I share personally in those uh, seminars about chemistry, affinity, and transparency, those are three primary qualities. And the affinity nature, when I was in college, my very first foxhole friend was uh, from Mesquite, Texas. 
And he had made a big impact on my life during our four-year run through the collegiate ranks. I was just with him recently to celebrate over 40 years of this friendship and going to a Texas A&M and Clemson Tiger football game. And uh, Coach uh, uh, Debo Sweeney helped pull the Tigers through in a last-second uh, victory, so we we're glad to see that. But then in the coaching ranks, after observing you coaching, my brother had a chance to come back and, and sit on the bench, uh, be your assistant coach, and then also under your tutelage as an athletic director uh, to coach some of the other sports as a head coach and that was very very beneficial to me and so out of that affinity for sports we developed this foxhole friendship that certainly in my life almost culminated with that trip to see a coach Richie today just having completed a, a Barnabas luncheon uh, my favorite thing to do in life on life uh, with men is to break bread together so coach and I uh, are involved like this so first that's excuse me the first principle in Ecclesiastes says two are better than one but a threefold cord is not easily broken and so what James Sanders from Mesquite, Texas, brought to my world, you and John Zeller then added additionally to that. And so in that collection, it also lives out that passage in Proverbs, the multitude of counselors, their safety. So I encourage you leaders, who's in your foxhole, as well as identifying that uh, with men uh, that you're attempting to impact along the way. Well, Coach, a couple years ago, you had a milestone birthday. You were uh, hesitant to kind of celebrate that, uh, seven <laughs> decades of life. But uh, we enjoyed also that was a memorable day to spend it with your family, take you guys out to eat. And we've launched a tribute page on Facebook. A lot of former athletes and students that like to follow, uh, friends, uh, even people back to high school. And uh, we'll post this podcast there so they can enjoy it, in addition to the Intentional Way audience, men's discipleship leaders around the country. But as we uh, bring things uh, to a close today, uh, what are some aspects of your life that God continually reveals himself to you? Uh, I specifically would like for you to highlight how you're serving God today in a local church capacity. You've gone into a non-denominational world, a very large uh, church in Charlotte, and you've been uh, recently uh, 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 placed onto the deacon board. Uh, not just a guy that serves God as an usher in the assembly, like we grew up with on the sawdust trail, but somebody that's strategically involved in shepherding the flock. So talk about some of the things that God has taught you through worship, discipleship, and uh, this new whole philosophy of ministry as uh, we go forward in our faith. Well, Jeff, I've, I've watched you uh, evolve, uh, if you want to call it that, uh, from our uh, uh, independent fundamental days of, of years gone by into uh, where you are today, spiritually and, and in ministry. And uh, I was reluctant to follow that at first, as uh, may, we may have mentioned before, but uh, I found... Uh, a tremendous uh, amount of joy in serving the Lord as um, I'm not even sure the right word to use, but with a little different outlook, uh, philosophy of ministry. And uh, I attend a church, my wife and I, that is a large church with multiple campuses. And we have just recently moved to a, a section of Charlotte that, uh, did not have a good gospel witness there, and uh, I was been been very fortunate to be uh, asked to serve as a deacon, and that's what a deacon is, as a servant, and uh, and we literally do serve that church. We we uh, very, we're very involved in the prayer ministry of the church. We also uh, have a hands and feet uh, section of uh, the deacons that uh, of the deacon responsibilities that we do. 
We serve the homeless. Uh, we uh, serve communion. Uh, we do a little bit of everything. And uh, I feel really, really blessed to be able to meet a lot of young people. There are a lot of young people that are asking questions, a lot of young people seeking answers with the world we live in today. And uh, it is very rewarding to point them to the one that has all the answers. And that's Jesus. And to uh, to try to live like him, though we're flawed and we're never going to be perfect so we get to heaven. But to have an opportunity to influence people in that way. And, uh, and you had a lot to do with uh, my... Uh, heading in that direction over the over the years and um, and I appreciate your intentionality of keeping up with me and even when you were away in uh, Florida and uh, I appreciate that very much but it's been a real blessing to be to be able to do this and we were just talking at lunch uh, today even about the liberty that we have in Christ and that's the liberty to use uh, that freedom to further God's kingdom. And uh, when I was unsaved, I didn't have the freedom to live for Christ. Uh, It was not there. But once finding Christ, or Him finding me, I should say, uh, it's a joy to be able to go to church and really enjoy worship and and enjoy uh, serving in in an atmosphere where the main goal is to is to worship God and to love Him and enjoy Him, which which I do. And I'm thankful for that. It's been a great joy discovery, uh, just like you had a chance to expose me to a much higher level of understanding of athletics from a coaching vantage point. And uh, I realized how much I did not know. And that also uh, whetted my appetite to grow and develop even further. And uh, But it's been great to see that role reversal happen in your journey of faith. And uh, to take you to greater heights and deeper depths. As you took me athletically, I wanted to take you as a follower of Christ. You had a chance to also join us uh, on several occasions, uh, mm-hmm. both in leadership training venues, like in Spartanburg, South Carolina, or to attend some men's rallies mm-hmm. or challenge guys, whether they're a locker room approach, uh, meeting them where they are and seeing God take them to where they need to be, right. as well as uh, you know the coaching clinic analogy. I mean, hey, we'd walk out of uh, the coach's office and there was a practice plan, which you learned from Dean Smith. Right. And uh, so you, there was a practice plan with emphasis of the day. The, the drills were all the way there. Guys are getting a chance, the players, to, to see what was going to be taking place. And I say all across America, too many leaders are playing sandlot football uh, with the men of their congregation. And no wonder they're not being effective reaching them. Because why? They're, again, fielding teams, not building programs. And so we want to help them to go further with a greater understanding of a full-scale, comprehensive approach towards reaching and discipling men. What would you say to the leader listening in today that may be kicking the tires, raising the hood? Hey, we might want to bring the intention away to our city uh, to train our leaders in our local church and or to rally our guys. What's been your experience with us thus far? Well, I would uh, wholeheartedly endorse that. Uh, For those of you who uh, maybe have not met Jeff, uh, you have seen some of his... uh, information and some of the things he does online at his uh, website and maybe you've heard uh, by word of mouth uh, from other people but I can tell you that uh, from being around Jeff and knowing him for all these years he lives uh, just like he 
he uh, advertises as far as his ministry is concerned. He is very intentional in everything he does. And I would encourage you to uh, touch base with him and see if uh, there might be a connection between you and Jeff or or Jeff's ministry and your ministry because uh, you can learn something from anybody. And I can tell you this works. Uh, having gone to several of the... Uh, MVP gang uh, meetings at uh, at a church where Jeff was a pastor at one point. Uh, I was amazed at how men respond uh, in a setting like that, and men to men, and whereas in mixed company they wouldn't, and um, and in a more intimate, smaller setting, it was really good. And although Jeff can speak to thousands, I'm sure uh, he can also speak to one, and so. It would benefit you greatly. I, I'm, I know Jeff learned things at clinics we went to, and, and so did I. We, we both learned at the same time. And uh, we can put it to good use to help bring athletes along the way to get you know develop them to be more what they're able to be or to reach their potential. Uh, Jeff is doing that very same thing under the leadership of the Lord to help men reach their full potential spiritually. Because in the in the uh, end, the bottom line, that's what really matters. Uh, I want to be passionate and concerned about the things that really matter and not so passionate or care much for the things that don't. And, and I, I definitely believe Jeff feels that way as well. Well, it's been great to uh, have Coach on the podcast today to uh, look back on our uh, uh, four-plus decades of uh, friendship and, again, to live out this whole foxhole uh, friendship mindset that uh, at least that's these four 9 through 12 talks about and to think back to the coaching grid when we were coached to players <coughs> and as a pastor to men. That's the grid that we drew from. And uh, I, I learned so much under Coach's tutelage uh, not just uh, on the court or on the field or in the clinic uh, setting, but also as he exemplified the faith. And uh, even today, you know, we're still raising the window shade, letting each other into our worlds. Hey, here's a struggle. Here's a challenge, whether it be parenting wisdom, marital harmony. How do we finish well? You know, how do we prepare for this uh, chapter of life? And uh, comparing notes on others that we have a burden for, former athletes or individuals and where they are in their spiritual uh, connection points. So it's always great uh, to get together and, and sharpen some iron. And uh, really was uh, looking forward. Coach Zeller has been on the podcast with us before. And he, too, has been a Fox old friend. Uh, he brings great humor. That's something that Coach and I appreciate. We don't have, have that as our, part of our DNA. So that, again, balances things out. You bring uh, everybody has a, a certain aspect uh, in those relationships that really will strengthen you and, and deepen you in your walk with God. Well, listen, thanks for tuning into the podcast today. Hope you've enjoyed our time with uh, Coach John Brooks. And, again, We'll follow up with you. Uh, if you're a new listener to the podcast and you're thinking about maybe pursuing some leadership training in your local church or having us come and speak at a rally, it's not important that we come to your town. We want to see God come there. 
But uh, Coach Brooks is a part of our prayer team, uh, people that uh, we see God do some things. And there's a move of God in the lives of people in the 18 states we've been privileged to travel to just this past year in 2018. And launching this ministry is due to God's, uh, obviously, orchestration of uh, touching lives, but also people behind the scenes that are part of our prayer team. And he's a crucial part of that. So it's always a joy to have him come along on occasion and be with me in the field and join us for some of our gatherings. But we'd love to come and visit you. You contact us, and we'll look forward to uh, connecting. Well, listen, until the next podcast, uh, be reminded, many people have good intentions, but few people practice intentionality. Live out Ephesians 5.16, where we're reminded to make the most of every opportunity. This is Coach K from Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll look forward to connecting with you next time on Insights on Intentionality.